Hey everybody, it's Monday morning. We're back again with the Religious Studies Project. No, uh, no adverts this week. Straight in. <laughs> exactly. I'm David, you, I'm David Robertson. I'm Chris Carr. If you would like to advertise with us, um, please do get in touch. Editors at religiousstudiesproject.com and Sammy will fix you up. Absolutely. We have a very interesting interview this week uh, by my colleague and friend Christopher Cotter and my colleague and friend Lois Lee. It's entitled From Non-Religion to Unbelief uh, and it's a discussion about how that field, non-religion, unbelief, atheism, is changing, has changed in the last five years and some of the new developments and directions that are coming out. I won't say anything else, I'll just pass it straight over. Greetings, Religious Studies Project listeners. I am speaking to you from London um, in the abode of um, Dr. Lois Lee, um, who's returning to the Religious Studies Project. Hi, Lois. Hi, lovely to be here again. Um, Lois was um, one of our first interviewees back in 2012. I can't remember the specific date or why it was happening. I remember sitting in a seminar room in New College um, along with my then-colleague and still good friend Ethan Quillen, talking about the concept of non-religion with Lois. And now five, well, possibly six years on, depending how we calculate that, we're checking in again um, to talk about non-religion, unbelief, the development of the field, how we go about studying this, other major developments that are happening in the field at the moment, um, and and anything else that we can fit into the next 25 minutes. (laughs) We last spoke to you, and I remember you saying that, you know, if we're still having this conversation in 10 years about, about non-religion, sometimes, yeah. something's gone wrong. We're not quite having the same conversation, but maybe I'll just throw <laughs> that at you as a way to kick things off. <laughs> and we're not quite 10 years on, exactly. so, I, so it doesn't, I don't have to falsify the thesis or prove or disprove it at this stage. But no, it's very interesting to reflect on that. I remember saying that, and I've referred to that quite often since then. A bold claim from someone who's argued that we need to look at non-religion and that there's practical, methodological and analytic utility in using that concept to uh, research religion and something we might think about as religion, religious-like or religion-related. But saying at the time, look, it's a means to an end. And 10 years on, hopefully we won't need that means to an end anymore. I would revise that view now, mm-hmm. which is good. We need to be moving forward and so on, because I think that the discursive study of non-religion is much, much more important than I was engaging with in my work at the time. Not that it was recognised, because I think work of critical secular scholars and critical religion scholars was showing that quite clearly. So Tim Fitzgerald, um, Talal Azad and so on and so forth um, are talking about the construction of things as non-religious, as being something that defines the whole modern period. Mm -hmm. So funnily enough, non-religious as in things that are identified in contradistinction to religion. So this very particular relational notion of non-religion that I worked on and Johannes Quack's worked on and so on. Non-religious discourses are very widespread. Mm -hmm. They they are, as all these scholars show and would argue, definitional of a whole epoch perhaps um, and vast waves of of the world. So I think there's actually a lot of water in looking at, um, and Jim Beckford has made this point very clearly, that we really need a strong discursive study of non-religion. And I don't see that disappearing anytime soon. So so we're going to need non-religion in the longer term and engaging with it. But I'm going to stand by 
the spirit of the claim, if not the letter of the claim, in that what I was getting at was that, and probably this this points to my own kind of core research interests, is that many people and things that are identified as non-religious are identified because of attachments that are not purely discursive. They're not just about relationality Mm -hmm. to religion. They're a way of describing lots of different things. And I've been particularly interested in what I've called in my book existential cultures, what Baker and Smith call cosmic meaning systems, what other scholars refer to, and Hayes, for example, refers to as worldviews. Mm-hmm. What we see now, and this is very timely to address this question now, because all of the work I've just mentioned has been published in the last three years at, at the longest, is a lot of play around working with how we're going to describe this stuff that is underlying what's expressed as non-religious identities, um, non-religious practices and positionalities and so on, or analytic language. So identifying as scholars, identifying people as non-religious and really what we have in mind are, for example, naturalist worldviews and so Mm. on. So I feel totally vindicated, in fact, in that claim, in that I think in five years, a lot of the work that's fallen within the language of non-religion, we don't use Mm. the the language of non-religion to identify we won't be using that language anymore. And precisely because there's so much dynamism at the moment around developing better analytic categories to get at what a lot of us have been getting at or learning from our research Mm. and so on that's important to the people we're talking with and so on. So a lot of the work that we talk about in terms of non-religion is going to fall within, well, okay, I'm not going to say what just just now, but maybe it's the study of worldviews, maybe it's existentiality, Maybe it's cosmic meaning systems. So, Who knows? I've just realised that I completely omitted to properly introduce you at the uh-huh. beginning of this interview. But surely I need um, no introduction, Chris. Exactly, but you've already <laughs> touched on it just there. So Lois is a research fellow at um, the University of Kent, uh, which is currently principal investigator on the Understanding Unbelief program, um, which is something that we'll get to very shortly. She's also a founding director of the Non-Religion and Secularity Research Network, which you'll have heard plenty about on this podcast thus far. And her 2015 book with OUP was called Recognizing the Non-Religious, colon, Reimagining the Secular. So you've heard about the book just there. And we'll get on to some of this just now. Um, and maybe, maybe the book's actually something to, to, to springboard from, since, again, we didn't speak about that last time. Yeah. Maybe just tell us about your own trajectory and how you've got to this stage of being PI on a project looking at unbelief. Yeah, that's right. It's, but I suppose when we last talked, it was a twinkle in the eye. Uh, and the, But the book is a culmination of what we were talking about in that earlier podcast, which I'm sure is available to listeners if they're interested to return to it. And as you say, it's I've already sort of alluded to some of the work in that book, which was about about identifying and engaging with populations in particular. I was most interested in populations we identify as non-religious and saying we need to uh, understand them qua in their capacity of identifying as non-religious or being identified as others by others as non-religious, and that many of the claims that are made about the religious would be partial if we didn't work much more closely with that population. That book arose from work that began in 2006, when sociology, which is my area, but the human sciences more broadly, really hadn't engaged with this non-religious population in any detail. It had 
sporadic forays, uh, significant but sporadic forays into into that area. So the book was very much a kind of a call to arms in a way, but this the title sort of summarises, I guess, recognising the non-religious, that as researchers we need to recognise the non-religious, as societies we need to recognise the non-religious. Um, I talk a bit about the commitments, investments, um, social attachments and so on of non-religious people that we need to that lead them to feel a sense of grievance if societies only recognise the analogous needs of religious people. Um, so there's a, a political argument there in the end. So where have we got to for how's that lead to the Understanding Unbelief programme? Mm. Well, again, I think yeah, I think we've sort of touched on that trajectory slightly already, which is that um, my kind of emerging interest was in particularly in the kinds of what I've called existential beliefs and cultures. The worldviews is a kind of common, more commonplace word we might think about, or I think slightly problematic, and we probably don't have time to get into that, but I think it's going to lead to some really interesting conversations with people really engaging closely with that concept and critically, which hasn't happened around worldview in the same way it's happened with religion so it'd be really interesting to see that work but what I'm interested in is the way in which humans conceptualize their own existence and the nature of reality that conceptualization is by its is intrinsically transcendent so it's stepping back to take a perspective on reality and existence Um, and in that way is something that there's something that's very much shared between or cuts across religious and non-religious divides whether all humans are as interested in this conceptualization, I think is a, a very open question. And that's very much the kind of where the book ends up is saying there are lots of things going on when people self-identify or are identified as others by others as non-religious. There are lots of political things going on. There are lots of socio-cultural things, some of which we might feel very sympathetic to and some of which we might be very, very concerned about. There's a lot going on. But one important thing that's going on is that non-religious people have worldviews and they aren't recognised clearly enough in the conceptual language we have or in the academy, for example, or other places in public life. So we have the sociology of religion and it's Mm. not clear how well that makes space for the sociology of non-traditional, non-religious worldviews. And I'm very much arguing we should do that. The unbelief programme builds on that in that we're so the focus on belief there's a couple of different reasons we're using the term unbelief and we always use it in scare quotes and one I think it's important to say that one of the reasons we have turned to that term is that we think it's very obviously a folk category emerges from Christian traditions it can't be confused for an analytic a viable analytic concept and we had some concerns about atheism secularism and non-religion actually that they had acquired a kind of veneer of analytic coherence that wasn't always borne out and so we wanted to uh, and this arises from conversations with others in the field about where the field was at we wanted to slightly step back from that and invite people to be a bit more uh, a bit critical about what they're doing and not close off questions as well. For example, I've spoken often recently about the disproportionate focus on positive positive atheists over and above strong agnostics in research. We now have an emerging scholarship around atheism with a capital A mm. and very little about agnostics, but there are lots of people who make the strong agnostic claim that humans can't know about the nature of reality and existence or God or whatever. 
we didn't want to foreclose on that by having a program on atheism, for example. So partly one of the strengths of unbelief is that it's very, very broad. It allows people to focus on different things that are going on within that rubric to not imagine they've got a, a specific or coherent analytic category to start off with, mm-hmm. but to think about what they're doing. But the focus it is a word that includes belief. That, that's partly because one stage that I think the field is at is that there's been a lot of energy in the last 10 years, the, the Non-Religion and Secularity Research Network. Um, I founded that in 2008, so we're 10 years on now. Mm-hmm. And in that kind of period there's been a kind of intense period of field building in lots of different human science disciplines a group who discussed the formation of this program said that one of the issues in the field was that there was no longer strong communication between different human science disciplines within the field Mm. at the beginning there was because there was so little scholarship we were absolutely thrilled to read anything that emerged now and it's a success story it's great there's lots to read Um, And one of the kind of unintended consequences of that is that some of that interdisciplinary engagement has faded. You know, it's enough to keep up with the sociology of non-religion or secularism, as it might be called in the US, as well as trying to keep up with the psychology of atheism, which is probably the favoured term in psychology. And that's fine, but also a shame because we could learn from each other and from that material. Um, And partly the language of belief just reflects different disciplinary conventions and a focus on the cognitive in cognitive anthropology cognitive science belief is very meaningful and significant within psychology and social psychology Mm. so we're trying to kind of bring those things together and find a language that makes sense to a number of different researchers Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, The Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. Yeah, I mean, I can see um, perhaps some of our listeners bristling in that if we're, um, we've been trying we in, I guess, religious studies to get away from a belief-centered model of religion, in a sense, you know, because it's so much more than that, potentially. So then to take this, the the other side of the coin, and then also say it's unbelief, you know, it's potentially got the same problems as reifying belief, but it's under-theorized. It doesn't have that, as you're saying, that cachet of it. This is potentially an analytic term. And it also, I mean, I, I've got to say that I, my current project is a comparative study of unbelief in Scotland and Northern Ireland, partly piggybacking on, on the, yeah, yeah. the EU program. But also I found that it was a much easier word to utilize with funders and people who were assessing applications who were outside of these debates, like unbelief wasn't as yeah. problematic in a sense as religion non-religion it, it, a lot less baggage but yeah. made a bit of intuitive sense is that part so that's part of it i think that's a really important 
um, point actually. And I think sometimes there's there's different modes of scholarship. My mode has been to work out what concepts are useful to me and then and what aren't what isn't useful to me and then run away with the ones mm. that are useful to me. But uh, that shuts off a lot of conversation with people who are using different concepts. And unbelief, I think, is really useful because it has um, it's sort of salient and, and intelligible to broader populations. They know where you're at. Some of the preparatory work for this program was developed in a project called the Scientific Study of Non-Religious Belief. And if you've read work around relational theories of non-religion, non-religious belief is something that makes sense. But if you haven't, and this is something we sort of, in earlier iterations of the project, we had, um, Kate, we came up against, you are not clear what a non-religious belief is. I mean, is that just any belief that isn't religious? Well, no, that's not what we meant. But that kind of confusion, I think, isn't always helpful to having kind of knowledge exchange with different kinds of audiences and research partners in a way that unbelief is helpful. It draws out its controversies too, but a lot of that discussion can be very helpful. I think we have a sense that one of the major goals of the project, um, which is very descriptive in its intention, so you can summarise its core research question as being to describe the nature and diversity of scare quotes, unbelief. And I, I tend to think of uh, as one of the kind of major outcomes of the programme being um, the ability to dis- to identify different profiles of unbelievers within national populations and maybe breaking that down f- further still. We could think about them as denominations of unbelievers perhaps, but maybe that's not a helpful way of, mm. of going about it. But I think in doing that, we and we should be able to identify much more concrete, positive language that will hopefully replace, in many ways, the concept of unbelief. I think unbelief is. I mean, I'd be interested to know what you think, but with your project. But for me, I'm not sure there's going to be analytic validity, usefulness mm. in that concept. It's much. It's quite clearly a kind of folk category, but it's a gateway to hopefully identifying a set of better, more interesting concepts. Better and more interesting, I think, also than atheism and secularism and non-religion. And again, that's a bit of a concern with those concepts because they're slightly... They are all helpful in lots of different ways. But because they're helpful, they sort of close down um, Mm -hmm. options to push further in certain directions. Whereas, in a way, unbelief is so clearly a folk category. It sort of invites us to think, well, what am I talking about here? So I might be inclined to say again that unbelief is another transitional concept like non-religion. Yeah, and if, yeah. we're, if I'm still using the concept in 10 years' time. Yeah, why not? <laughs> um, so we can meet again in a few years and see what's come to pass. Exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's a productive conversation. Yeah. And the programme, we're also really concerned to broaden out the conversation from academia and engage much more effectively with uh, broader audiences. And again, a sort of language that makes sense to broader audiences is something that will enable, help us to do that and will help us to learn from perspectives outside of academia. Excellent. Now, there's a few directions we could go in here and, you know, I, part of me is wanting to push that um, button again about are we potentially reifying groups here by talking about types of unbelievers yeah. and di- dichotomizing the world. But listen to our previous interview, listen to my interview with Johannes Quack back yeah. from twenty. 20- 15 and also um read some of Alyssa's work some of my work where we, where we do engage with this all right yeah. <laughs> to skip to the what's 
a debate that hasn't been had before. Well, this would just be retreading ground. But tell us about just tell us about this understanding and belief program. Then, so that there are there are four other sort of you're the principal investigator. The, the, the core team and then there's a whole bunch of other different there's projects lots of people so just i won't mention what, everyone by name what, what, i hope they're not it? offended what, but there's a on? lot of so there's, there's a lot going on and i think it does say something about where the field has got to so as i sort of said earlier i think there's been a phase of field building which has involved a lot of conceptual work which has involved a lot of making the argument about why we need to study this group to our colleagues in academia and that's something you've been involved with um, mm. and several others have been involved with and I think that argument has clearly been won aided and abetted by broader social context in which mm. there's a wider recognition of non-religious actors people describing themselves as non-religious so I think that's great and we're moving into a new phase now where we're concretizing or pushing that kind of more general work further there are lots of different ways in which people are seeking to break down those populations and be more specific. Again, that's something you've done in your work, I've done in my work. So when we first started discussing this programme, there was a sense that, I mentioned some kind of field-wide interests and concerns, which was about the usefulness of some interdisciplinary work, about moving on from some of the conceptual debates we've been having, not encouraging a new round of work about concepts, but really getting involved in empirical settings. But very chiefly was a sense that empirically we needed to work outside of the West, that learning about mm-hmm. atheists, people who identify as atheists and go to the atheist church, for example, or read new atheist material was something that had been quite well covered in mm-hmm. the field um, by that point. Um, and we needed to think beyond that. So outside of Anglophone settings, outside of Northern European settings and the US and Canada, but also within those settings and beyond thinking about demographic groups that have not been well studied. Matt Sheard has a paper in Secularism and Non-Religion about non-elite, non-religious people within the UK and how little they've been researched. Mm. I I agree, I agree. Non-white, uh, women, agnostics rather than atheists. There are so there's a very big population. We've done the work of saying this is why we need to engage with them. Here are some ways of engaging with all these different groups, and now we really need to do it, and also yeah get outside of the kind of well-worn tracks. So we wanted to consolidate some of the work that been had been done, and from that basis, really hopefully be part of ushering in this new phase, uh, mm-hmm. which I think there's lots of other research that's a that's going on concurrently which is a part of that so the approach has been there there's i'm working with a multidisciplinary team to lead the program so we have jonathan lamman who's a cognitive anthropologist mm-hmm. miguel farias who's a uh, social psychologist and uh, stephen bullivant who's a theologian and also a sociologist with expertise in quantitative work um, i'm a sociologist with focus on qualitative work so that team we're doing research across five different countries I can't think how many continents, a few continents, and uh, at the kind of centre of that project. But we also have uh, now have 21 project teams working around the world to do work much, much more widely than a small team could ever do. Mm-hmm. Given that, as I've already sort of alluded to, actually the empirical work we had was fairly narrow. Um, and in order to answer questions about the nature and diversity of non-belief, we really needed to be very broad. Our core project is working with 
strategically with five countries that are revealing kind of broader global trends and so on. But actually, it's great to have work going on in lots of different places. So one of the projects which is grounded in psychology is working with, I can't think in total how many countries it is, 10 or so countries that have very high numbers of people who identify as non-religious. So that includes South Korea, Australia, Japan, Azerbaijan, Vietnam, and so on and so forth. A really diverse set of countries that they'll be going into and using psychological methods to engage with those populations. At the same time, we have close ethnographic research going on, project based, I should say, all of the information of these projects and all the other projects is available on our website. Which is? Which is, the easiest URL is understanding-unbelief.net. It has it also lives within the Kent, University yeah. of Kent system, but that you can find it there. And no doubt it will be available on the podcast website. I say that because there are so many projects I couldn't, and they're very exciting and yeah, very much expense. worth looking at. And yeah. And now we're talking about um, each one. But just to sort of give a sense of the kind of contrast, there's an ethnographic project that's looking at magical thinking in two different European settings and working very closely, at very much exploring kind of unbelief, people who cast who are cast as and cast themselves as unbelievers. And they're working with a very typical population of rationalist thinkers, but looking at things we might identify, and they as anthropologists are used to identifying as magical thinking within mm. those populations. So between those very broad quantitative studies and those very kind of detailed, nuanced qualitative studies, we're hoping we're not going to be able to map the world of unbelievers, but we're hoping to be able to join a lot of dots mm. um, and get a much, much broader picture of What's, I think, how they described, is it the fourth largest faith group in the world? Non, the non-religious or actually people who don't affiliate with the religion are the third largest religion and unbelievers are the fourth largest faith group. Right. To put it sort of <laughs> somewhat crudely. But so, yeah, there's a lot to learn and we hope to learn a lot of, hope to learn something about that group. Excellent. And um, yeah, listeners can keep an eye on that website um, over the coming couple of years so when when's yeah. the project wrapping up it's 2019 yeah i think it officially ends in late 2019 but there'll be activity ongoing i would think with you get a sense of all these different projects and work coming through from that for the longer term i would think absolutely we're already coming up to sort of the end of our time i'm gonna ask you a question now that i didn't prep you with so feel free <laughs> To rewind, but you, we were saying before we started recording that, that you know, there's maybe a sort of dearth of female voices speaking in, mm. in this area and researching in this, in this area. So I just wondered if you had any any comments on that as a sort of final final thought as as sort of yeah. leading light in this area. A topical yeah. a topical theme in yeah. societies more broadly. No, that's mm. a good thing to focus on. Good question. Thank you. Yeah. No. There. In the last project I was involved with, the scientific study of non-religious belief, we had a series of blogs on methods, one of which focuses on gender and talks about a concern in the study of non-religion and atheism about the way in which both that field is gendered and the study of that area is gendered. Mm. And partly this comes down to different sorts of kind of quite interesting feedback loops so for example we have studies that show that the language of atheism is 
slightly more popular with men than it is with women. And that's reflected in research. So, so I am a woman and I quickly said, I don't like atheism. That's not my main framework. I prefer non-religion. And that's typical, actually, of quite a lot of researchers mm. to, to slightly generalise. But there is a kind of way of engaging with very male-dominated atheist cultures, like the New Atheism and so on, that interest men and then sort of other voices, really interesting work that prefers concepts like non-religion or secularity or secularism or so on, that's sort of been lost a bit. I've noticed that happening in a few, there's a, several collections that are very male-dominated, and mm. much of this is not distinctive to our field. But there is, as I say, a kind of relationship between what we're studying and how we study it that is specific to our field. Actually, that sort of brings back to the topic of agnosticism. So we, in my field, are kind of very generally acquainted, and so are sociologists of religion, with the idea that religious people are more likely to be women and non-religious people who are to be men. So from mm. wherever you're coming from, this gendered phenomenon is known. and shouldn't be overstated, but is marked and it's interesting. Within the non-religious field, if you break that down between people who um, identify, have sort of strong ag- atheist beliefs and people who have strong agnostic beliefs, then the gender profile looks quite different and the agnostics are more female overall and atheists are more male. So again, there's that kind of concern that the way that gender may be a factor in what we're researching what we're choosing to research and what's being neglected in the uk the agnostics are a larger group than the atheists why haven't we looked at them part of the answer to that question is about gender and it's very by no means the whole answer to that question Mm -hmm. but i think it's an element or something we should at least be exploring and concerned about i'm really thrilled actually that we have so many research teams on the understanding unbelief program and it is a very gender balanced set of researchers and because of the way in which our own perspective shapes the questions we ask and how we look at them and so on i think that's a very good sign for the work we'll what we'll learn through the program but i do think it's an interesting topic for us to reflect upon as i say there's a an NSRM blog that's been written on it. And I I think there's scope for a bit more work around reflecting on... It's a sort of other side of the coin of the focus of the study of elites, even within particular cultural settings, is thinking about who's researching them. And that very much relates to broader questions in academia at the moment about non-elite voices having space um, to be heard and the perspectives we might be missing you know, I think it's a question of good and bad science, if we can put it in in those kinds of terms, because we will find out new things if we have include a broader range of perspectives. This we know. So, yes, yeah, so I think that would be a good thing for us to be reflecting on as a field going forward into the next phase. We're, I can't remember if we're reflecting on the last five years or the last 10 years, but well, looking forward anyway. <laughs> Good. And hopefully the Understanding Unbelief uh, program will contribute um, a lot to that as well. So yeah. um, we're out of time, Lois, but it's been wonderful to speak to you. And, and you. And um, I'm sure listeners uh, come back in another five years and we'll see where the conversation <laughs> is next time. <laughs> Well, thanks to me and uh, Lois. <laughs> thanks also to uh, uh, Lois for um, for cooking me dinner, and uh, we 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 shared a bottle of wine in her flat in in London that as we uh, as we um, discussed that. And and yeah, um, I would quite like to have one point two five million pounds for a research project. 
I'm fairly certain it will never happen for me. Well, you never know. Gnosticism <laughs> is the next growth area, so I've heard. I don't think so. It's been marginalized for at least 2,000 years. I don't see that changing anytime soon. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> what have we got next, next week, Chris? Uh, we've got uh, Brianne uh, Fallon is coming back. Um, I just done lots of interviews now i think yes. in the five to ten mark um becoming one of our stalwart interviewers and she's been interviewing um doug ezzy on um well the interview is called good grief rituals of world repairing doug ezzy has uh he, he was instrumental with um carol cusack in in getting the australian association to um, sponsor our our male chimp um which they've been doing for a couple of years so shout out to them um i met him at Sockrell 2016 we're facebook pals um so looking forward to hearing a bit more about his research i didn't have a chance to attend his presentation then uh, yeah, indeed i We'll be looking forward to meeting him in New Zealand at the IAHR in 2020, which is probably the only time in my life I'll ever be on that side of the globe. Yeah, exactly. But it's going to be good to hear about that intersection uh, between RS and all the other various rituals that uh, people perform surrounding grief, death, etc. Absolutely. I mean, ritual study, we don't have enough on. We did have for a while, but we haven't had anything... you know, for a little while now. And um kind of death practices, memorials, burials, all that stuff's very, very interesting. Especially, I mean, probably something that intersects both of what we do in terms of it being sort of popular mm. practices that transcend normal notions of religious identity, but are nonetheless to do with belief and ideas in sort of supernatural or, you know, some sort of spirit world very interesting stuff exactly and they can become real sources of tension because you've got that sort of authenticity it are the rituals for the individual who is mm-hmm. no longer there or are they for the the community uh, that are left behind mm-hmm. the imagined community right? indeed indeed um yeah well i said it last week so i'm just gonna hand over to you to say it this week david thanks for listening The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and Managing Editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett, and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or by donating at patreon.com backslash project rs and you can find us on facebook twitter google plus youtube itunes and other portals <laughs>